Hi. I'm Sierra. I'm Kirsten. And welcome back to our podcast. Woo! Yay! We're um virtual today. Um, so we're trying something new. So if it sounds really bad, I'm really sorry. I'm getting a microphone somewhere. But yeah, we live like a uh, hour and a half, almost two hours away yeah. from each other. So it's a little bit of a draw. She's every been coming week. to my house because she doesn't like live in her own home yet. So it'd be kind of weird if I showed up there. I mean, nobody would probably even notice if we're being honest, but it's fine. Yeah. Um, so it's my episode today. Um, yay! Yay! I am doing a classic. A classic. Okay, okay. I'm doing Mr. Ted Bundy. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. You're like, oh, it's a popular serial killer. <laughs> and I'm like... Okay. So what are you drinking? I'm actually not drinking anything. I feel like I'm Oh very, my god. I'm very unprepared. This whole thing has just been very unprepared. So this is definitely going to be a two-parter. Um, because it's a lot. So I'm pretty much, this episode is just like his background and his actual murders. And then uh-huh. the next episode is going to be the trial. So, okay. So it's very, very long. Extensive. Yes, it's extensive. Did you do extensive research? Um, I did like, I don't want to say like the basic, basic research. I did a little more than I feel like I normally do. So semi mediocre, like mediocre, and then like right above. Yeah, like yeah, I would say you know, like you know, I'm I got some I got some good details in there. You know. Okay. Ted Bundy was born as Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24th of 1946 to Lewis Cowell. Bundy's biological father was never confirmed. Um, I tried looking it up. I didn't even see any, like, oh, this might have been his father kind of, like, things. So I couldn't really hmm. find any, like, clues as to who he would have even been. Um, I doubt that they would have ever even wanted to come forward. <laughs> yeah, they probably, if you know, they probably know who they are, but at this time they're probably like, yeah, let's just like pretend he never didn't. Never mind. Happen. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, so that at the time of his birth, Louise had obviously been unmarried and she was very young, so it was not as accepted in the time, mm-hmm. which. They didn't want, like, he was pretty much, like, a bastard, is what they called yeah. him. Mm-hmm. So, as he was, when he was being raised, um, Ted Bundy actually believed that his grandparents were his parents and his mother was his sister. He lived with them um, in Philadelphia until 1951. After that, Louise actually took him and moved to Washington, where she married a, nam- a man named Johnny Bundy, which is where he got his last name. At this time, he still thought that Louise was his sister. He did not know that she was his mother. Even though he wasn't living with the yes. parents anymore? Yeah, so he thought that his sister took him, married a man, and he's living with a sister. And how old is, was he at the time? Um, the, he was born in 46. They moved in 51. So, not pretty young. Like, <clears throat> what, like five, six? I was going to say at least under, like, seven. Yeah, so he honestly probably didn't really think, like, why am I leaving my parents Mm, to go with my sister? That makes sense. Yeah. Even though Ted 
took um, his stepfather, I guess you would consider stepfather, Johnny Bundy's uh-huh. last name. He never actually considered him like a father or looked up to him as a father figure. The only man he ever looked up to as a father figure was his grandfather, which mm-hmm. he didn't really get any, like he wasn't with him a lot because they were so far away once he moved. Right. I guess they didn't visit a lot or you know they just didn't see them much after they moved away. Mm. So... Louise and Johnny had four more children, and Ted had spent many days babysitting these younger children, which confuses me because it's like, oh, I'm babysitting my nieces and nephews or brothers and sisters. Like, how is how are these kids like? Yeah, it's gotta be like really him? confusing for such a young mind, especially yeah. like, like I don't know, just like no explanation as to like what's going on. He's just like, oh, I'm with my sister now. Yeah. As a preteen, he was he was bullied a lot in middle school, but it lessened as he got into high school. In high school, he was he was pretty like chill with everybody. He was quiet. He didn't you know he wasn't like super out there. But mm-hmm. people didn't really have bad things to say about him. He did well in school. He was you know well liked for the most part. So he wasn't really like a big thing in high school. But he also wasn't like being brutally like bullied or anything. Mm-hmm. So, from high school all the way to college, he actually struggled with social inadequacy, um, which led him to transfer in colleges because he felt pretty much, like, inferior inferior to everybody else he went to college with because he wasn't in the same, like, social class, like, money-wise. Mm-hmm. So, he transferred to, like, a less, like, rich school so that he didn't feel so inferior to them, which was, like... Something kind of interesting. He was very, like, weird about how he, like, was presented. And, like, if people had something more than him, like, he didn't want people to be able to have something better than him. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds a little jealous. Yeah, a little jealousy. But don't worry, we'll get into the, we'll get into the real obsession. Okay. Okay. Uh, So he wasn't really a big dater, obviously, in high school or college, just because he was kind of shy and awkward. But he met a girl named Stephanie Brooks, and he very quickly became obsessed with her. Uh Uh-huh. He often, like, made himself out to be something more and better than he was. So he gave himself all these accomplishments and all of this great, you know, this great background when he, you know, was telling her about himself as like she got to know him but she eventually figured out that like most of it wasn't true or very much exaggerated so she actually broke up with him after dating him for a while because she deemed him not husband material so that's a little rude a little harsh a little harsh but like i mean i can understand like you totally lied about pretty much everything yeah like i understand like you're frustrated to break up but why can't you just be like sorry Sorry, it's yeah. just not for me. Yeah, no, she you kind of was just simple. like, yeah, she was like, no, like you're not the one. Mm-mm. You're not the one. What's her name? Heather. Stephanie Brooks. Stephanie. Mm. It's always that name. It is always that name. So this completely broke his heart. Um, he continued to obsess over her though. Like he was always, you know, everything he does, he does from here on out was like with the intention to like. Be the man that she wants. Because of this, he went through a very extreme period of changes. He 
had extreme depression. He dropped out of college. He became a petty thief. Um, so a lot of things from this one girl, because he was so obsessed with her, really caused him to... Spiral? Yes. Along with that, he finally figured out around this time that his sister was actually his mother, and his family had been lying to him his entire life. After this, he developed what I saw someone call a false bravado. So he basically returned, he pretty much put on like this whole new like persona. Mm -hmm. He returned to college um, to get a bachelor's degree in psychology. He began to date a girl named Elizabeth Kendall. Um, even though he was dating her, he was still, he was very unfaithful to her. Um, but she stayed with him. When he was the, pretty much the person he was making himself out to be, like, he was working towards being this great, like, successful person, it was pretty much to show Stephanie that he could be the man that she wanted and the man that she thought she deserved. And then his plan was to break her heart. So she, he wanted to become everything that she wanted and then break her heart. So while he was dating Elizabeth, he was cheating on Elizabeth with Stephanie. Oh. Yes. Yeah. So Stephanie was like, wow, he's doing so great. He's so successful. He starts cheating on Elizabeth. Elizabeth stays with him, but she, but he's cheating on Elizabeth with Stephanie because he plans on breaking Stephanie's heart anyway. Along with like his success in, you know, becoming a whole new person, he was also very successful in his career. Um, he started to work on the re-election campaign of Washington's Republican governor, Dan Evans, who then appointed him to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. He then became an assistant to Ross Davis, who was the chairman of the Washington State Republic Republican Party. This was in 1973. So this pretty much him becoming his assistant kind of ensured his future to having like a very successful political career. So because of that, he actually en enrolled in law school in Utah. Before he moved, um, at least three women from the college campuses around Washington and Oregon, where he was located at the time, went missing with a man who went by Ted. First description of him in his Volkswagen, which you'll, you know, I'm sure you already know, but that's kind of like his car and everybody knows that he drove like a yellow buggy and mm -hmm. all this stuff. Um, the first description of that was given to the police, but this is after he moved to Utah. The description of him was given by the one of the first women he tried to attack. She actually escaped. Her name is Karen Sparks. She's one of the very few who escaped him. She was 18 years old. I feel like he's also very stupid for, like, saying his name. Yeah, like, giving his real name to people. Yeah. Because, like, like, oh, a man named Ted, the like, brain? they went missing with a guy named Ted. Yeah. And, like, he uses his own car and, like, you know. Yeah. So Real she was a Ted. I mean, he got away from, with it for a while, surprisingly. Yeah, I know. Yeah, but um, she was a student at the university, and she was actually attacked in her sleep on January fourth of nineteen seventy four. So basically, after sneaking into her basement bedroom, oh he God. beat her with a metal rod that he tore from the bed frame, and then um, ram pretty much raped her with that rod um so Ew. very yes oh my god yeah he was like a very very brutal person is she like okay now 
Uh, so she survived, but she spent 10 days in a coma and suffered permanent brain damage. Oh she woke my up God. with no memory of, like, the beating or the assault or anything. I feel like that's kind of, like, better. Yeah, like, you're glad she didn't, like, have to. Yeah, but at the same time, like, just to bring justice, it's kind of like a split. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Mm. So, um, Bundy's next victim was 21-year-old Linda <clears throat> Ann Healy. She was a very popular student at the university and gave weather and ski reports at a local radio station. Her colleagues found her disappearance extremely suspicious. It just it when she disappeared, it just didn't sit right with them. Um, the police found blood on Heatley's bed sheets and pillow, but it wasn't enough to indicate that she had bled to death, and there was no like indication to like where she would have gone from other than you know what was on the bed. Her nightgown hung in the closet with a ring of dried blood around the neck. Um, some of her clothes, her pillowcase, and her backpack were missing. Three days after her abduction, a male voice called 911 and they said, Listen and listen carefully. The person who attacked that girl on the 8th of last month and the person who took Linda Healy away are one and the same. He was outside both houses. He was seen. Police never got the caller's name. They don't know who made that call. It was Ted. I mean, it probably was. That's kind of what it seems like. But they, you know, were never able to confirm that. <clears throat> this was pretty much, like, the first sign for police that something very bad was happening. Um, and it would take them a very long time for Bundy to even become a suspect. Fourteen months after her disappearance, disappearance, her skull and jawbones were found on Taylor Mountain, about an hour away from her home. This one is a little, I mean, they're all pretty, like, brutal, but this one's just, like, a different kind of brutal. Okay. So, his next victim was Donna Gail Manson. She was a 19-year-old student at Evergreen State College. This is, like, south of Seattle. Mm -hmm. She disappeared on her way to a campus concert, and her body was never found. Um... Bundy later claimed that he had burned her skull in the fireplace of his girlfriend, Elizabeth. In her yes. fireplace? Yes. Bundy later confessed to Detective Robert Keppel, of all things I did to Liz, this is probably the one she is least likely to forgive me for. Poor Liz. Liz being his girlfriend. Okay. Which is very, very not sympathetic, very kind of cray-cray bitch. Yeah. Yes. You unstable. You unstable. <laughs> you need therapy. You need, you need Jesus. Um, Bundy's next victim was 18-year-old Suzanne Elaine Rancourt. She disappeared on a college campus. Um, this time it was Central Washington State College, which was, was east of Seattle. So far, all of Bundy's victims have looked very similar to Stephanie Brooks. Dark hair, fair skin, um, that kind of thing. However, mm -hmm. um, Suzanne Elaine Rancourt actually was blonde hair, blue eyes. Um, so she was very out of, like, out of mm. um, character for his, like, victim profile. Out of his type. Yeah, so <clears throat> I just thought that was interesting. 
That is interesting. And yeah. odd. Yeah, it was just like a very one-off thing. At 8 p.m. on April 17th, uh, she was putting a load of laundry in the washing machine and headed to her regular dorm advisors meeting. She had planned to see a German film with a friend afterwards, but no one saw her after the meeting. Her clothes remained in the washing machine until a frustrated student took them out and put them in a heap on the table. Her disappearance actually prompted a massive search with no results. Later evidence mounted that Rancourt was one of Bundy's victims. There were other students from that night from the same college that had reported being approached by a man named Ted who had an, his arm in a sling. So another thing he often did, which we'll see in the next one, I believe, his next victim, is he pretended to, you know, have a broken leg, have a broken arm, you know, I need help with this. And that's when, you know, when nice people want to help him is when he attacked them. So Bundy's next victim was <coughs> Roberta Kathleen Parks. This was the first known uh, victim in Oregon. She had disappeared somewhere between her dorm room in Oregon State University at a coffee shop where her friends were waiting to meet her. Investigators later discovered her skull among a lot of his other victims in Taylor Mountain in Washington. On June, or in June 1974, he actually struck twice, on June 1st and again on June 11th. The attacks were very similar to before. It was a, you know, people described a man displaying some kind of handicap, asking for help. Witness, witnesses saw, last saw 22-year-old Brenda Ball at 2 a.m. outside the Flame Tavern south of Seattle, talking to a man in a sling. Others remembered a man on crutches struggling with a briefcase near the University of Washington the night sorority girl Georgianne Hawkins had vanished. So everyone, you know, Witnesses all saw some man who was disabled asking for help the night that these victims kind of just disappeared. I was listening to a podcast. It might have been And That's Why We Drink. Mm -hmm. And they were doing like their listener stories, which are kind of similar to Morbid's. Mm -hmm. And like, I guess like uh, somebody wrote in that like their grandmother actually had an encounter with Ted Bundy. At, like, he would hang around a lot of, like, uh, modeling agency things that they used Ooh. to do back in, like, the malls. Mm -hmm. In, like, the early, like, 1980s yeah, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And, like, she, like, got, like, bad vibes. Good. And she was, like, deuces. And then he just automatically turned, like, to be a huge dick to her yeah. instead of being all, like, oh, you're beautiful. Yeah. So. That's, like, the thing. Like, he, like, the second, like, anybody, like, rejected him, he was, like, I kill you. It took uh, a pretty decent amount of time for the Seattle police to actually make a connection between this handicapped stranger and the accounts from the, the women, you know, who had disappeared in the area. There were mm -hmm. witnesses who remember, also remember being approached by a man with a stack of books who was struggling. So a lot of different, like, oh, I'm struggling, I need help kind of things. And he was also, you know at the time, you know, generally, like, good-looking person, so, like, he didn't yeah. look like a creep. He looked like a normal, like, a normal guy for the most part. Well, that was kind of, like, his thing. Yeah. Like, the normalcy of it. Yeah. 
So Bundy abducted both Janice Ott and Denise Nasland from Lake Sammamish State Park on July 14th, 1974. His victims again grew in July of 1974 with the murders of Janice Ott and Denise Nasland. He kidnapped both women on the same day, um, which was about a 20-minute drive from east of Seattle. They, the abductions actually happened in broad daylight. Witnesses reported a man with his left arm in a sling that had approached them, introduced himself as Ted, and asked for help rigging, uh, rigging his sailboat up to his car. One young woman initially obliged but grew hesitant when she approached his brown Volkswagen Beetle with no sailboat in, in sight. So when she hesitated, he quickly was like, oh, he said, oh, I forgot to tell you, it's at my folks' house, just jump, just to jump up the hill. Um, apparently he put on a slight British accent while speaking to her, so I did not know that. I did not know that either. Not something new. He motioned to the passenger door, the passenger door, and she bolted. Um, a little while later, she actually saw another woman walking beside the man toward the parking lot in deep conversation. So, finally, with this um, this girl who came forward, the police finally had something to you know work off of, like a little bit of a description. Mm -hmm. So she described him as having sandy blonde hair, around 5'10", 160 pounds, and he had a brown Volkswagen bug. They commissioned a sketch of the suspect. They had, like, no idea how close they were to Ted Bundy. He actually worked on Seattle's suicide hotline, and the Seattle Police Department even nominated him to be the director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. Oh, Jesus. So he, was, he was right there, and they had no idea. He was idea. in there. I didn't he know all that. There. I knew he worked for the suicide hotline, but I didn't know that they nominated him to be the director of the Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. Yeah. Like, that's, like, kind of a big thing, because he's Yeah, no, I didn't crime. know all that. His colleague, Ann Rule, had reported her suspicions about Bundy to the police after seeing the sketch. The authorities noted that Bundy did, in fact, drive a bronze Volkswagen bug. However, nobody followed up on her suspicions. Like, they took note no, of it, of nobody followed up. Because why would they? Why would the police do their job? Backed up again! Yes, he did. So after the disappearances of the of Ott and Nasland, um, the disappearance of young women in the Pacific Northwest just abruptly stopped there was no more you know disappearances or anything like that so they kind of assumed that it stopped for a while so being accepted into the university of utah as a law student he actually arrived in salt lake city in august 1974 which is why it stopped he did not mm. it did not take him long for him to continue his murdering spree so in October 1974, um, Bundy attacked a 16-year-old cheerleader, Nancy Wilcox, outside, who went out to buy a pack of gum and vanished. Um, witnesses later thought they'd seen her riding in a Volkswagen bug. So there is another survivor, actually. Her name is Rhonda Stapley. 
Mm-hmm. On October 11th, he approached approached Rhonda Stapley. She was a first-year pharmacy student waiting for a bus to take her back to the University of Utah. Bundy offered to give her a ride in his car. Um, he took her to Big Cottonwood Canyon, where he repeatedly strangled and raped her. The only reason she got away is because he turned his back on her and it gave her a chance to run. Um, and she escaped by jumping into a nearby river. Jesus Christ. However, instead of contacting the authorities, she hid her story for nearly 40 years in fear of being blamed and ridiculed. She didn't tell anybody until 2011. That's such a shame. Yeah. That, like, I mean, even nowadays, like, society's kind of like that to some extent, but, like, I know it was ten times worse back then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She later said in an interview, I was afraid that people would treat me differently if they knew what happened. I wanted to put it behind me and get on with my life. Pretend it never happened. So. That is not good coping mechanisms, girl. No, it's not, honey. You gotta do better for yourself, boo-boo. You do. Yes, you do. The next victims were Melissa Ann Smith and Laura Ann Aim. Or Amy. I don't know. One of the two. So, Melissa Smith's father was a local police chief. Um, she was killed by Bundy, who they believe posed as a police officer when he abducted her. Oh, wow. One week, yeah. So, she was 17, and she, she her disappearance was one week after um, Stapley's. So, she disappeared after meeting a friend at a pizza parlor. She had planned to walk home and pick up some clothes and then head to a friend's house for a slumber party, but she never made it home. Her body was found nine days later in Summit Park in the mountains of East Salt Lake City. And then on Halloween, Bundy struck again. 17-year-old Laura Ann Aim disappeared on the night of October 31st after leaving a cafe. Her family didn't realize she was missing for another few days. Hikers had found her frozen body in the mountains oh about a month later. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah. Why? Oh my god. Ugh. Just why? Yeah. That's just so sad and like so young. Why do you keep getting like younger in age? I don't know. Like, you really start yeah, going for like 17 year olds. Yeah. I feel like probably because they're easier to. Yeah. I guess. Um, I mean, have you seen all sister? Yeah. Yeah. They're a little bit more gullible. Yeah. But I feel like, I feel like if Alexis, if a Ted Bundy walked up to Alexis, she would be like, no. <laughs> no. Hopefully. Hopefully. I have full confidence in her. Full confidence. November 1974. After posing as a police officer named Rosalind, Bundy approached Carol Duranch at the Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah. He told the 18-year-old girl her car was broken into and she needed to go to the police station. Trusting him, she willingly got into his car, but she quickly noticed that something was wrong because they weren't driving towards the police station. His demeanor, his friendly demeanor, quickly shifted into, like, a cold, very aggressive kind of um, aura. When she asked him what he was doing, he didn't answer. Although he managed to force her wrists into a pair of handcuffs and threaten her with a gun, she actually broke out of the car and ran for her life. She found refuge with a couple driving nearby who brought 
her to the police station. She couldn't find Rosalind's face in any of their books of mug shots. So, another oh one God. that got away. A few hours You're later, so... sloppy, Ted. Yes. You're getting sloppy. The, the same day, a few hours later, he approached 17-year-old Debbie Kent after a performance of a high school play in Bountiful, Utah. This time, he, decided, he succeeded in abducting her. Um... Ken's parents refused to turn off their home's porch lights ever since the disappearance, the disappearance, saying, We have always left the porch light on when they went out at night, and the last one home always turned it off. Aww. I will never turn it off as long as I'm here. I will never turn it off. Um, that was her mother in an interview. That's gonna make me cry. Yes, so despite him normally, normally being um, pretty thorough with his abductions and murders mm -hmm. he actually left something behind in the parking lot it was a key that matched the handcuffs that deranch had escaped escaped earlier that day so mm. he kind of fumbled that one you fucked up yes uh police were unable to connect bundy to kent in other similar kidnappings um Durant would play a, a very large role in his 1976 conviction when her testimony identified him as the man who kidnapped and assaulted her. He wasn't, Bundy was not arrested for the Durant kidnapping until October 1975, so this gave him quite a bit of time, almost a year, to continue killing before he was finally captured. Um, but her escape did definitely, like, you know, make him weary, very, you know, he didn't expect that. After killing Kent in November of 74, he had a few month break and began his killing spree again in January of 75. This time he was in Colorado. He had kidnapped 23-year-old Karen Campbell in a hotel in Aspen. Uh, she was a registered nurse in town. Um, and attended a medical and was attending a medical convention on the night of January 12th. She had left her fiance and his children in the hotel lobby to grab a magazine from the room and then she vanished. March of 1975, Julie Cunningham was a 26 year old Colorado ski instructor who went to meet her roommate at a local bar. Bundy approached her and asked for help with his crutches before kidnapping her. In April of 1975, Denise Lynn Oliverson, um, after a fight with her husband in Grand Junction, Colorado, um, she was 24 years old, jumped on her bike and headed for her parents' house. She did not make it to her parents' house. Um, investigators later found her bicycle under a, a viaduct. I don't know what that I think is. that's like a like a bridge like under the highway like that part oh, okay. under the bridge. I could be totally okay. wrong, but I'm pretty sure what that that's what that sounds is. right. So pretty much he's like he's killing one person a month in '75. It looks like until pretty much until he's captured. So then in May of 1975, uh, this was one of his youngest victims, Lynette Culver. She was only 12 years old when oh, he abducted her in. Pocatello, Idaho, on um, May 6th. He had spotted her earlier that day on the playing field of Almeida Junior High. He raped her, murdered her in a hotel bathtub, and threw her into the river. Her body has never been found. 
Oh. So she was literally almost okay. done. Okay. Almost there. <laughs> I know this is, a, this is a pretty brutal one. That's why I was like, maybe we'll just split it into two parts. Give everyone just give me a, a little breathing space. Yeah, give everyone a little breather. <laughs> I was tempted to split the victims into two parts because it was just like so, so much. But Ugh. we're going to get through it. We're almost there. Okay. In June of 1975, 15-year-old Suzanne Curtis um, disappeared from a college campus as she left a Mormon youth conference at Brigham Young University. She had lived in the same neighborhood and went to the same school as Debbie Kent. Um, Bundy actually almost forgot about Susan. She was the last person he confessed to killing when he very abruptly asked for a tape recorder on the way to his execution, um, but her body has not been found to this day. So he like almost forgot that he killed her. Ugh. Which is like disgusted. Yeah. In August of 1975, law enforcement finally caught up to Bundy. Police discovered masks, handcuffs, and blunt weapons in Bundy's car during a routine traffic stop. Suspicious but lacking evidence, they placed him under surveillance. They tracked him down. They tracked down his car, which he had actually sold to a teenage boy after that, and found physical evidence tying him to several of the missing women. Then his escaped victim, Carol Durant, identified him from a lineup in, on October 2nd. Between then and January of 1978, he pretty much was trying to outrun the cops. He was jumping from Colorado to Chicago to Michigan, Atlanta, um, ended up in Florida. Where in Florida in January of 1978, he committed probably one of the most violent one of his most violent crimes that he's done. Um, he was pretty much just, like, dying to kill somebody. He broke into a Florida State University sorority house where several students slept in. He snuck into the bedroom of 21-year-old Margaret Bowman and bludgeoned her to death with a piece of firewood. He then proceeded to the room of Lisa Levy, who was 20, and beat her, strangled her, tore off one of her nipples, bit deeply deeply into her left butt top her left buttock and raped her with a bottle of hairspray. So he just like I don't even know. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Ugh. Just reading that just like ugh. So one of the victims roommates of the sorority house um, later in an interview recalled seeing a black mass I couldn't even see that it was a person. I saw the club. I saw it lifted over his head and slam it on me. That's what I remember most. Him lifting the club and bringing it down on me. That is from uh, Kathy Kleiner. So two of the girls, um, Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler, were very close to being one of his victims um if it wasn't for the headlights that actually flashed through their windows of the sorority house um they probably would have just they probably wouldn't have woken up or seen anything so after failing to kill those two girls um he then proceeded to break in the apartment of 20 year old cheryl 21 year old cheryl thomas um, but she did escape with her life because a neighbor heard the noise. 
she did suffer permanent death deafness and enter her dance career. So he tried to, he was angry that he didn't get all the sorority girls. So he broke into a apartment that was nearby, tried to kill her, but was stopped because somebody heard it. But pretty much changed her life. She permanent deafness was no longer able to dance. Um, and then Bundy's last victim was in February of 1978. Um, he murdered 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. Ugh. He kidnapped her around her school in Lake City, Florida on February 9th, 1978. She was going to meet a friend and head to class together. Two months later, her body was found 35 miles away in Suwannee River State Park. That was... I believe all of his victims. Um, our next episode, well, my next one will be his trial and all that. But um, yes, yeah, so that was a pretty gruesome one. That was a rough I, one. I suggest everybody take a step back, get some coffee, go pamper yourself, forget about this entire podcast. Go watch a, a feel good movie. Yeah, go watch a feel good movie. You know, don't light some sage. Yes, some sage always be aware candles. of your surroundings. Cleanse your crystals. Cleanse your crystals. Everything. I don't even want to ask you how you're feeling because, quite frankly, I already know the answer. Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty rough one. Yeah, that I don't even really know what to say. That was a rough one to research. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I guess we'll see you guys for episode seventeen. Yes, we will. It'll be Kirsten's it'll be and my turn. a little more lighthearted than mine, but perhaps not. Semi. Not as Semi. gruesome. Not as gruesome, okay. I shouldn't say that, because that really downplays it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so. It's not Ted Bundy, we'll say that. It's not Ted Bundy. That's, <laughs> that's correct. All right, guys, we'll catch oh. you on the flip side. Yes, we will. Bye. Bye. That probably was so totally out of tune. It wasn't that even probably funny. was. That's okay. Ooh! Hey guys, Sierra here from Killers Crime and Coffee. Don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook at Killers Crime and Coffee, a true crime and paranormal podcast. Instagram at Killers Crime Coffee Pod, or our website at KillersCrimeCoffee.wixsite.com. You can email us any story suggestions or feedback at KillersCrimeCoffeePod at gmail.com. Make sure to follow our friend Kobe, who made our awesome intro music, at C-O-B-Y.C-O-N-R-A-D-D-D-D, Kobe.Conrad, where you can also find the link to his personal music. Don't forget to follow us on Amazon and Spotify Music.